want to thank God this, for this morning time and giving me this privilege to be here and to share God's word with you. 13 years ago in 2002, I was 30 years old. You can do the math and know how, much, how old I am now. My wife and I landed up here with a singular thing in mind. I told God, God, I want to be here for two years. I have been an evangelist in India by the time of 22 years. At 19, I came to know the Lord. I was finishing my bachelor's in English literature. And after I surrendered my life to Christ, he called me to serve him. And so then I went on to study, did a master's in linguistics. And then I moved on to ministry. I was hardly 21 or 22. And by the time, by God's grace, and I landed here, I have been traveling around, speaking in various settings. But I never had a theological degree. So I always said that I want to come somewhere to study and to see what's the least number of years I would get a degree and I want to go back to India. <laughs> and so they told me a master's is only two years, so that's how I came here. And little did I know that for now 13 years that I have been, I would be associated with Asbury in various ways, having went on to do a THM and a PhD and then to speak in so many of the president retreats, and then to chair the international alumni, and then also to now and be here and to even preach God's word at this ministry conference. I'm deeply thankful to God for what God has done in my life and what he continues to do with me. Now, when Dr. Tom reminded me of what I spoke on, on 2008, the graduation uh, my testimony, I, I didn't call others as donkeys. <laughs> In fact, I was telling about myself as a donkey. Uh, you know, I loved horse so much. Horse is my favorite animal. I always thought God created horse at the best moment of his life. And it's so beautiful, isn't it? Except for sometimes the skinny legs, it's so very well designed, right? So sleek and so powerful. And I loved horses so much, and somehow in my imagination, I thought myself as a horse. I was just 21 years old and all charged up, wanting to go out and do something for God in my own country. And I always thought myself as a horse. So when I came here, the first two years, I had a huge struggle because this image of horse would come, and I didn't know that God would bring me to the horse capital of the world, right? <laughs> to teach me a lesson that I'm not a horse, but I'm a donkey. <laughs> I always had this picture of this black horse, sleek, strong-looking, shiny, uh, you know, skinned, but somehow tethered to a post, and it keeps tugging at it, tugging at the tether, trying to break free. The first two years I spent here was very restless. In my mind, I was telling God, there are millions who are, you know, are not hearing the gospel, and what am I doing here? I was trying to pull myself away. Until one day, I went to First Alliance Church, that's my home church here in Lexington, and that was a, a Palm Sunday, and uh, Pastor Steve was reading uh, the passage, and remember that the donkey that was tied, and, and Jesus sends the disciples and said, go and untie the donkey. And as the passage was being read, I heard, oh, Steve is here, good to see you, Steve. Uh, I... On that day, the Lord told Prabhu, listen, listen, this should be the image of your life. It's not the horse, but it's the donkey. And I will untie you in my time. 
I didn't know that it will take six years, you know, to be untied. But that day, the Lord taught me something that I am not that harsh, trying to take charge on my own, but the donkey that must carry him around. The donkey must always remember, right, this huge crowd around you. People often say good things about you. And people who shout hosannas, they would put their, they would carpet the ground with their, with their clothing. And they would wave the palm branches and they would say hosanna. And the donkey should never ever imagine that the hosanna is for it. Right? You must always remember the hosanna is for the master. And the day the master that Jesus dismounts from that donkey, it goes to become that donkey that is tied to that post. So this morning I stand before you as that donkey, tired, brutal, weak, but still carrying Jesus and still carried by Jesus. And in that sense, I stand with you this morning to proclaim God's word with you. Would you please pause for a moment and pray with me as we get into this passage. Would you please pray with me? <clears throat> Our gracious Lord, we want to thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, we could come together as your people. Thank you, Lord, for your presence, Lord. And even this morning, Father, this is my prayer, that you would feed your people, hide your servant, and build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Corinthians is one of the most autobiographical, probably the most autobiographical letters of Apostle Paul. He talks about the various struggles that he has gone through, right? He talks about the, uh, the, the persecution, the sufferings he had, if you read chapter 11. And only here he reveals himself about in, in chapter 12 about the thorn in his flesh and the struggle that he has to go with that, go through in that process. And he also talks about the false apostles who have infiltrated into the church and the smear campaigns against him and those people who are trying to undermine Apostle Paul and undercut his ministry and influence in the very church that he had planted. Now, it was in that particular church, so as he writes to that church in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uses this phrase twice in chapter 4. In verse 1 and in verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. So based on that this morning, I want to quickly talk to you on the theme going on without giving up. How can you and I go on in our life and in our ministry? Sure enough, problems will come, persecution will come, opposition will come, false witnesses will come, smear campaigns will come, but how can you and I go on without giving up? So I said, let's look at some of the principles of perseverance or, or, or what I would call uh, the Pauline postures of perseverance. Here Paul takes four postures I want to briefly place before you this morning. And ideally speaking, that this would be a four-part sermon, and, uh, but what I'm going to do is just you know, cram it together and just you know, put it out and... Uh, Please go back and read the passage. This is so rich. You know, I believe the Spirit of the Lord would minister to you. Number one, how could Paul go on without giving up? Number one, the first posture is looking upward. You see, in verse one, we read, Paul says that, therefore, 
through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, what was the version you were reading, uh, Seth? What was the, the version? Oh, NRSV, good, thanks. I'm reading from NIV, okay, as some would call it the non-inspired version. So, <laughs> sorry. I've been used to it, so I've been using it, and I love it, okay. Number one, right, looking upward, as he sees God, what does he see? Number one, he sees God's mercy. Now, when he says we have this ministry, we have to go back to chapter 3 to talk about what that ministry is. You know, he talks about the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant. And Paul says that we have this ministry because of God's mercy. It's not I have this because of my own abilities and my own capability, but I have this because, precisely because of God's mercy. And so Paul knew that in spite of others who are trying to undermine his ministry and undercut his influence in the Corinthian church, Paul knew if I have received this ministry from God, then God is also capable of taking care of my ministry. Sometimes, particularly when we go into ministry and in leadership, we know sometimes we tend to become insecure. We tend to, you know, look around and say, how do we guard, how do we protect our ministry? Of course, sure enough, there are things that we ought to do, but the confidence is that this is from God and God will take care of it. So Paul says, as he looked upward, with all the struggles he was going through, the first posture, he looked upward, he looked at God, and he said that what I have in my hand is precious, and it comes from God. I want to move on quickly. The second thing he looks about God is we read in, chapter, in, in the same chapter in verse 7, he looked up and he saw the power of God. First, he saw the mercy and the grace of God, and second, he sees the power of God, and he says what? We have this treasure in jars of clay, so that to show that this all-surpassing power is not from us, but from God. So he understands that I don't, in spite of going through difficulties, I don't have to give up, I don't have to get discouraged, because the one who gave me this ministry will also give me the power to do the ministry. So it, that is that confidence that it made Paul to go on in spite of various difficulties. Sometimes our conception of power is very different, right? And I think the Southern Christianity has so much to teach the Northern Christianity about what true power is, what depending upon the power of God, particularly in places where you could no longer count on the power that comes from the state. And when you go through intense moments of persecution, God willing, tomorrow I would briefly talk on persecution and I've asked them not to record at least the first 10 minutes. I'm going to show you some pictures that are really very sensitive of what some of the things that are happening. So he sees God's mercy. He sees God's power. I need to move on. And number three, he sees God's glory. We see in verse 15, he says that all this, whatever is happening through him, he says what happens, all this is for benefit the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. He finally sees God's glory. He says that all that I do in and through my ministry, or God does in and through me, it is all done for the glory of God. Therefore, I do not lose heart. In my own feeble little way, whatever I do, 
by God's grace, God is turning it out for his glory. Therefore, I do not lose heart. There are so many other things you can look into it, but uh, you, as you read, I, I'm sure that you will, the Spirit of God would reveal it more to you. But I want to dwell a little longer in this first passage because this is so fundamental. This is so foundational for our Christian life and ministry of looking upward, of focusing upon God in the midst of all the pain and the struggle, in the midst of all the disappointments and disillusionment to keep focusing upon God. Because that's what I think so often we tend to lose focus. Think about the great man Elijah. We often think about, I think, I often say there is one man, you know, I had struggled to understand with one scripture verse, that is James 5, 17. It says that Elijah was a man like us. I always thought if there were one man who was unlike me, that was Elijah, right? <laughs> Amazing man, right? Single-handedly, he would, he would make Ahab, you know, shudder in his royal sandals. He almost had a key to the heaven. He would pray for three and a half years. The heaven would be shut and he prays again. Then the heaven opens and they will have rain. And this man had such an audacity of faith that he would call forth fire to come and consume, but he would pour water upon the sacrifice and he would soak it wet. Single-handedly, he would handle around 450 prophets of Baal, another 400 prophets of Asherah. One man who was unlike us, that was Elijah. We read that in 1 Kings 18, until you come to 1 Kings 19, and you see the message of Jezebel that was sent to Elijah. And Elijah, we read that Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. I thought here was a man who knew no fear. He was afraid. He went into the wilderness. You know the story. He went under the broom tree, and he said, enough is enough, Lord. He goes to sleep, and an angel of the Lord comes and taps on him, gives him some food and water, goes back to sleep. Angel of the Lord comes back and, you know, again taps on him. He eats the food. Why did God do that? Not that he would always live under that broom tree, right? And he gets food all the time. In verse 8, there's a little phrase in verse 8, 1 Kings 19, 8 says, strengthened by that food, strengthened by that food, Elijah would walk 40 days, 40 nights until he reached the cave in Mount Horeb. And he goes into this dark cave and the voice of the Lord comes to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah goes on to this big list of complaint. If you read verse 10 and verse 14, exact list of his complaint. And if you notice closely, you see that the complaint was all about centered around him, centered around Israelites, and it was centered around Ahab and Jezebel. Lord, I have been so faithful to you. I am the only one left, and these guys have broken the altar. These guys are now trying to get me. It was all around him. And what did God do? God never told him there are 7,000 guys. That would come much later. But God would tell Elijah, come out of the cave and stand at the entrance. The Lord is about to pass by. Because the Lord knew somehow, somewhere, Elijah has lost his focus upon God. Elijah would focus upon himself, upon Ahab and Jezebel, upon the problems, upon the Israelites. And God wanted to give a fresh revelation of himself to Elijah. And he would be strengthened by that. And remember, then the Lord would say, go back where you came from. The Ahabs and Jezebels were still there. But Elijah is now changed because he had had a fresh encounter with God. Maybe I'm addressing some Elijahs this morning here. You have done your battle. 
You have waged your battle courageously. And you walk along with God. But probably you are here this morning. Somebody tired and saying, enough is enough, Lord. Enough, Lord. But this morning, the Lord says, Elijah, I need you. You are not destined to lie under the broom tree in the wilderness. Your life is not destined to be in the dark cave, even if that's a cave in Mount Horeb. But I want you to come out, Elijah. I have a job for you. I want you to serve me. Looking upward, looking upward, Paul knew that in the midst of all the pains and problems as he went through, if he would continue to focus upon that, he would lose his perspective. That's why the writer to Hebrews, right, Hebrews 12, 3 says, Consider him, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow tired and become weary. Consider him. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Number one, looking upward. Number two, looking inward. The second posture we read in verse 16. Here we read in verse 16, 416. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. As Paul sees that in the midst of all these struggles and the difficulties, even if the body is being wasted away, there is something happening inside. That the Lord is transforming him from the inside out. And, and so he rejoices and says, therefore we do not lose heart. You notice it is in the present continuous tense, so that is an ongoing process that God does, but we also have a role to play. What did he say in verse 2? How did he guard himself in holiness? He says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. He talks about a personal purity. And then he says that, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. He talks about a public integrity. We hear sometimes people say, oh, I can't be accountable to you. I'm accountable only to God. But Paul here says what? That we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. And then finally he says, in the sight of God. Meaning God is watching. God is watching. There is a divine accountability. There's not only a personal purity and a public integrity, but all these things is done in the knowledge and the awareness and the consciousness that it is done under the eyes of God. That God is watching. I heard about a story of a little girl called Mary, a very naughty little girl. One night she came to her daddy and said, Daddy, can you write in the dark? You know, you are happy. I have a five-year-old girl. You are happy when kids ask that, que that question which you can do, right? So, so daddy was happy. He said, yes, darling, daddy can beautifully write in the dark. So she went, she went and she switched off the light. And now everything has become pitch dark. Then little Mary slowly came to her daddy and said, Daddy, here is my school progress report. Would you please sign in it? <laughs> <laughs> Mary was naive, right? She was thinking she can do, get any mark and put her daddy in the dark and get away with it. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Many times you and I can think like that. We can do anything and put my spouse in the dark and put my friend in the dark, put my pastor in the dark, or even I could put God in the dark and get away with it. 
The Bible says, Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Upward, looking upward, looking inward. Number three, looking outward, looking outward. When Paul sees outward, he sees two things. You know, in verse 8, the famous verse, he said, we are hard-pressed, but not crushed. You know, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Paul sees, number one, as he looked outward, even though in the midst of the problems, that God's grace is sustaining Paul. So he says that I do not lose heart. Why? Because we do not deny the problem, like some cultic groups would think, or some Hindu philosophies would say, okay, it's all Maya, right? It's all illusion. But Paul doesn't deny the problem, but he says in the midst of the problem that God's grace is sustaining Paul. He says, that's why I do not lose heart. He looks at that. The second thing, when you look outward, he sees that not only God's grace sustaining Paul, but also God's grace saving people. That's a beautiful verse. In verse 15, he says that the grace that is reaching more and more people. So Paul is saying, if you go back and read, please read the verses before. We didn't have time, so I asked them not to read that. Paul is saying, listen carefully, very important. He said, like, death is at work in us. Death is at work in us, whereas life is at work in you. Every day, for the sake of the gospel and God, we are being given over to death. Are you listening, my brother and sister? This is, this is ministry. This is the man who would change human history when somebody would say, death is at work in me. It's not about me, Lord. Let anything happen to me. But it's about you. And it's about your kingdom. It's about your gospel. And it's about your cross. How gloriously different this Paul from some of the cheap, diluted gospel we hear around today. I'm really sickened the other day when I'm just watching some of the Talk shows the talk of a man who would ask for $65 million to get a private jet so that they could continue to reach the lost and the dying world for the sake of Jesus Christ. If America has to be re-evangelized, if our churches have to be revived again, we need to rediscover, listen to me today, we need to rediscover what it means to carry the cross, what it means to put ourselves on the line, what it means to take a risk for Jesus Christ. Only then, give us 100 people, like John Wesley told, give us 100 people. Give us the young generation, the next generation who are coming out, give us that 100 people who would say that, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. And you see what you and I can do with those people or you can see what God does with those young people in our nation in the days to come. Death is at work. Life is at work in you. Finally, looking forward, the fourth pasture. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal. How could Paul go through all the suffering knowing that I am being given over to death? Because Paul knew death is not an end. 
Death is just a door that a Christian, a follower of Christ, we do not walk towards a grave. We walk towards glory. We walk towards glory. The day that you and I would get hold of that, nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop you to do what God wants you to do. When the day that we get hold of the truth, that you and I are not walking towards a grave, we are walking towards glory. I want to close with a true story. Time is up. I'm going to take a couple of more minutes, but please bear with me. Exactly two years ago, in March 2013, I was in Sri Lanka. The Methodist Church had invited me there to go to, uh, in the particular region, that's the eastern part where the Tamil people live. We had a series of meetings for Methodist pastors, lay leaders, school, Sunday school, all kinds of things. And finally, the pastor, the district superintendent, took me to a place and he showed me a statue. A full-size statue of a man who's standing with Bible in one hand and a lantern on another hand. I asked him, who is he? To my shame, unfortunately, I never knew that man's name. The district superintendent said, he's William Alt. I said, what is good about him? He said, he's the first Methodist missionary to die on Asian soil. So that kindled my curiosity. I was scavenging for some info about him, but hardly I could find any. But finally, here and there, I picked out and put together the story of this man, an amazing man. This is our heritage, a man, the first Methodist missionary to die on Asian soil. If we need to understand William Ald, we need to go back a little bit in history. We need to talk about that great man called Thomas Cook. Many of you know, right? Cook, probably our generation, when we think of Cook, it's different, right? But this is... Man, you need to know about this Coke, okay? The great learned Coke, having a doctorate degree in civil law from Oxford, the right hand man of Wesley, considered as the father of Methodist missions, and this man who would travel 18 times, he would cross the Atlantic 18 times. This man who had a heart for gospel, who would, who would inspire missions in West Indies, in Sierra Leone, in Africa, other parts of Europe. He, he, he had this great passion for God and world mission. He wrote, in fact, a pamphlet saying that we must set up a society to reach the gospel, to take the gospel to the unreached, even before William Carey would, read that, would, would write that in 1792. If you're a mission student, you would know, right? William, uh, you know, what he wrote, uh, 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 an inquiry into means, and I'm going to stop with that because it's a long title. It'll take two minutes of my time. <laughs> Thomas Koch was a visionary. He was a visionary man. But you know what his passion was? He said, I have a great door of usefulness has been opened to me, but I can give it up all if only I can go to India. That was his passion. A lot of people stopped him because if he goes, what would happen to the Methodist movement? But finally, he got his way and he picked up five missionaries along with them. He boarded a ship to India. Now listen, at the age of 66, William Alt was one of the missionaries, the only missionary who brought his wife with him and they were on the boat. And sure enough, after the ship was going for some months, remember it's a long, almost six months travel from England to India at the time, William Alt's wife fell sick, and after some time, much prayer and medication, whatever they could do, her condition worsened, and she, and she died in the ship. They had a funeral, and they buried her in the ocean. And before William Alt could recover from the death of his spouse, after some time, a couple of months, Thomas Koch will become sick. And soon enough, Thomas Koch also will die on, on board. 
and he too was buried in the ocean. So the missionaries landed in Mumbai and not knowing what to do, but they know that they have to go to Ceylon or today Sri Lanka. They took another ship and they went to the harbor called Gal in, 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 in Sri Lanka. There they had a meeting and then they cast lot and for William all the lot fell called Batikola. He must go to Batikola. So he goes there to Batikola and he begins to learn the language and he begins to serve God there. And soon enough, he got struck by a fever. And after some time, William Ald passed away. He served in Batikola for only eight months. Only eight months. But in the eight months, he planted a church and he started eight schools. And there on his deathbed, we have a record of the last hymn that he wrote. On the deathbed, on his deathbed, he wrote a hymn. And some of the lines of the hymns go like this. He says that, Asia salutes the rising day, glad to own the Messiah's sway. Asia spreads her hand towards God. Where is he writing? On his deathbed. Body racked with pain. Running a high temperature. Just lost his spouse. Just lost his mentor. Only been there for eight months. But he is saying, with eyes of wishing, he said, I will go on. I cannot give up. But I see with eyes of vision that Asia stretcheth forth her hand towards God. Today, 200 years later, people are talking about the kind of people who are coming today, the numbers in Asia. He passed away only eight months. And the local people today remember him and they put a statue. Bible in one hand and the lantern symbolizing broad education. But the Bible is there because that's the basis for life. That's so you can give all the education you want. But if the Bible is absent, everything will become useless. So he had his Bible on his right hand and the lantern on his left hand. William Ald. The story doesn't end there. Two months after that, on May 2013, I was in Colombo speaking in a revival meeting of another church and met the pastor who was the one who installed this statue. He told me that he had invited leaders from all the faith communities on that day. And they were all talking about William Ald. And finally, one Muslim leader stood up and he made a statement. He said, William Ald was like a stone dropped into the pond of Sri Lanka. William Ald was a stone dropped into the pond of Sri Lanka. And the ripples left behind by that stone is felt even today. It's felt even today. And I believe through all eternity, the ripples will be felt by that one life that refused to give up, to go on. This morning, as you and I are in God's presence, the call is coming to you. I don't know in what condition you are here this morning, but the Spirit of God is ministering to you specifically and say, my dear, my dear child, would you make a commitment this morning to say, Lord, I want to offer myself. Come what may, Lord. Come what may, Lord. This is my one desire. I want to go on. I want to finish well, Lord. I want to serve you faithfully. Would you make that prayer? Let's close our eyes and pray. As we are in God's presence, 
Today, after the chapel service, the altar will be open. And if some of you want to come here, this friend, and if the Spirit of God has spoken to you and you want to make a new commitment to God, feel free to do so. But let me pray and close. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for the assurance this morning, Lord, for men like Paul, for men like William All, who are right in front of us saying, go on without giving up. You can do it with God's strength. So that's what we make a commitment this morning, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there are some brother and sister who had come into the sanctuary today, if there are some Elijah, if there are some Elijah in a dark cave, I call them out, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Come out and stand in the presence of God, for God is going to touch you today. And that's why he has brought us all this morning. And we want to thank you, Lord. Glorify your name. Help us to go on without giving up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.